Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Creation Today Theology series, posted April 8th, 2021, titled, Eric Hovind Lost Trust. It's been a few weeks, but Eric Hovind finally shared his reaction to my video analyzing part one of Lost. I remember crying and crying and crying and thinking, did he do it on purpose? I did. Ready for part two? Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you haven't already, please take a second to tap on the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. Welcome back to our review of Lost, Eric Hovind's for-purchase group Bible study curriculum loosely based on his Genesis Paradise Lost movie. The series so self-aware that it occasionally includes interactive elements, like this. Guys, don't you dare fall asleep on me here, okay? This is critical. Wives, wake him up right now, okay? Yes, I'm speaking from experience. This second episode of Lost explores Eric's interpretation of faith and trust. No matter what you want to believe, you can always find an expert in your corner. I'm glad that Eric put expert in finger quotes here. There are indeed such a thing as actual experts on topics. But throwing on a lab coat, speaking confidently to an audience or camera, writing a book, or even necessarily obtaining a degree doesn't necessarily make someone an expert. But the bigger problem is with the start of that sentence. What you want to believe? If you start with a conclusion and seek out data that affirms it, then you're not looking for truth. You're actively engaging in confirmation bias. For decades, I started with the conclusion that the Bible was true. It wasn't until I allowed myself the freedom to consider that the Bible might possibly not actually be as true as I thought that I became willing to look at the whole picture. Now, if you want to know the truth, you have to know who to trust. As I touched on in our last episode, who should we trust isn't a great question. No one should be implicitly trusted on any matter of import. A person can be right about some things and wrong about others. People can lie. People can distort. And probably most often, people can be honestly mistaken. No. The better question to ask is, how can we verify if what is being claimed is true? This is applicable no matter who the source of the claim is. What methods are at your disposal to affirm the information? Your confidence level should match the corroborating data, not who said it. And yes, that absolutely includes everything you ever hear me say. So how do we know who to trust? Which experts do you accept and which do you reject? If you accept or reject a claim based on who made it, that's called the genetic fallacy. The reason I can have a whole channel dedicated to evaluating the claims of Christians is precisely that I don't outright reject everything a Christian says. If I did, I'd just put up a Christians are liars banner and move on to a different hobby. 
even Eric Hovind is right about some things and wrong about others. And right and wrong themselves are not binary, mutually exclusive categories. Truth is a spectrum. It is the extent to which a proposition conforms to reality. Now, it is important for me to note that in absence of your own personal specialized expertise and well-documented evidence to the contrary, in most cases, it is the wise thing to do to allow expert consensus to be the default starting position. When a group of people have dedicated their professional lives to the study of a topic, checking each other's work for accuracy and bias, that's the reasonable starting point. None of us can learn everything about everything. I'm not advocating for blind adherence, but your dissent should be backed by significantly more than distaste. Let me put it another way. Where or who do you put your faith in? By, by the way, faith and trust are really misunderstood terms today. I've read many, many atheist thinkers on the subject of faith and trust, and they try to put the word faith with religious thinking and the word trust with scientific thinking. While Eric's objection may well represent his general experience, please allow me to frame this in a slightly different way that I hope will be beneficial to theistic and non-theistic thinkers alike. Sometimes people use the word faith to justify accepting a proposition as true, even when it cannot be demonstrated with evidence, as a bridge that spans the gap between evidence and acceptance. It's a leap of faith. prominent atheists use faith this way. Faith is an assertion of unreasonable conviction assumed without reason and defended against all reason. Where faith means belief in something without evidence. Because if you believe something without evidence, then that justifies anything. The faith of religion is belief on insufficient evidence. And some prominent Christians also use faith this way. That is definitely a faith statement. There is no evidence that animals and plants are related. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. So we don't want faith in the textbooks, do we? He can't prove that scientifically. So he has to have faith in that. I don't have enough faith to believe that that value just landed there by chance. I don't have enough faith to believe this happened by chance. We don't need to try to prove this to them. Faith is the evidence. It literally is the evidence. Your faith is the evidence. I would also argue that Hebrews 11.1 1 uses faith this way. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, an assurance about what we do not see. In this sense of the word, faith and hope are synonyms. In reality, that's not what the words originally intended at all. I understand that, when pointed out, this makes some Christians uncomfortable. But if that's you, please at least acknowledge that some fellow believers do use it this way. And it's not a fallacious interpretation for an outsider to make. Now that said, skeptics should similarly acknowledge that a believer can actually mean something else when they say faith. Think of it this way. Faith is the noun. Trust is the verb. If you look at a chair and you believe that it will hold you, well, you have faith that the chair will hold you. When you take action and sit in the chair, your faith becomes active. Now you are, the verb form, trusting the chair. So with Eric's definition, faith is related to trust. Faith is having enough confidence in an idea 
to take action upon the idea. I understand the appeal here, but in my view, that makes faith and trust entirely redundant. They're both just confidence here. And acknowledge that since this usage of faith says nothing about the evidential justification backing the confidence, that it can apply to literally any idea one can be confident about. It can apply to justified true beliefs, like the persistence of gravity, 2 plus 2 equals 4, or a clear road that's safe to cross. And it can equally apply to unjustified beliefs, like the monster under my bed. Should I be taking active steps to avoid said monster? Both the hope and trust usages are common enough that it pays to ask the person using the word what they mean for clarification. And it's unhelpful to insist that they must adopt a different usage. However, since this is a word with multiple usages, everyone should be mindful of equivocation, of a conversation where people start with one usage and shift to the other. That's a fallacy and the cause of many problematic lines of reasoning on both sides. If you want a good read on the subject, go to searchcreation.org and type in faith versus trust. You may recall that searchcreation.org is the custom search engine that returns results only from sources that Eric Hovind endorses and trusts. I can think of no greater example of confirmation bias than this. In our age of science and reason, we are so consumed with the what, where, when, why, and how questions that we neglect to ask what we call the money question. Who? <laughs> who is the one who did this? That's the one place modern science will never go. Well, first of all, that question assumes that there is a who who did this. That's called begging the question or assuming your conclusion. I trust you see that the first question to be answered is, did someone do this? If you assume there's a who, that's no different than assuming there isn't a who. They both assume a conclusion. And contrary to Eric's characterization here, science doesn't assume a who or not who. Scientists have recognized that the scientific method is incapable of answering the question either way. So, it employs a philosophy called methodological naturalism, simply an agreement that since science can't presently answer supernatural claims, that scientists don't waste time positing supernatural questions while they're doing science. Makes sense, right? No sense in trying to write an essay with a hammer. It's the wrong tool for the job. You see, trusting in scientists who tell us that we are not allowed to ask who did this might be one of modern science's biggest blunders. Of course, everyone is allowed to ask who did this. It's just not a question that science can answer. So the lab isn't the right place to ask that question. You see, the other thing they've done in our education system, they said science can only explain things by natural processes. Here's where Eric played a clip from his movie. Rather than cover it again, please see my Science of Genesis Paradise Lost Part 4 video for analysis of these misplaced complaints. If science is only allowed to search for natural explanations, then the supernatural, God, is automatically disqualified from being the answer. Again, it's not that science is only allowed to search for natural explanations. Like there's an authority out there somewhere pushing science around, telling it what to do. Science is the search for natural explanations. That's what it is. 
Eric's complaint is no more valid than protesting that painting is only allowed to apply color to a surface, or space exploration isn't allowed to investigate my backyard, or gymnastics isn't allowed to bake a cake. Now, science can answer a lot of questions that Eric thinks are related to God. How old is the universe? Was the planet ever entirely covered by water? Do humans and mosquitoes have a common ancestor? Those are questions that science can answer, and answer well. But Eric doesn't always like the answers. See, not allowing science to ask who has caused them to come up with some really colorful explanations about the origin of the universe and the origin of life. Indeed, they are limited to how. If indeed there is a creator God, science is merely getting closer to explaining how he created what he created. Such knowledge cannot threaten any actual facts about who, but it can threaten someone's preconceived notions about who and how. Think about history for a minute. Uh, for centuries, Western civilization trusted the Bible as an accurate record of historical events. It's not my place to tell Christians how to interpret the Bible, but most Christians today accept a universe that is billions of years old and some form of common descent for life on Earth and at the same time feel that this is still treating Genesis as accurate. Now, I happen to disagree, but I wanted to point out that accepting science isn't automatically the same thing as rejecting the Bible. These are separate questions. Towards the beginning of the 19th century, the scientific communi community began putting their faith in a set of individuals that ended up leading them astray. Because Eric believes based on authority, he mistakenly thinks that everyone believes based on authority. This is completely incorrect. Science has never put faith in individuals. Instead, it values the predictive power of an idea or hypothesis. To the extent to which a hypothesis predicts what will happen, or what new data we might discover, that's the extent to which it's trusted. And when new ideas and hypotheses are better at making predictions, the old ones are discarded, no matter who held them. Albert Einstein's static universe model was rejected, even though his name is still synonymous with being smart. So who were these men? I'm going to skip over Eric's attempts to besmirch the individual humans being named. Charles Darwin, James Hutton, Charles Lyell. In Science of Genesis Paradise Lost Part 2, I go through the half-truths and out-of-context innuendo that Eric likes to put forth about these men and their motives. But for today's purposes, all we need to recognize is that Eric's attempts on this front are entirely the genetic fallacy we spoke of earlier, rejecting an idea based on where it came from rather than on the merits of the idea. Today, there are many who trust the modern scientific developments that have come from the ideas laid out in the writings of Hutton, Lyell, and Darwin. Is this trust misplaced? It could be proven that Lyell, Hutton, and Darwin were all regular puppy kickers with poor hygiene, hated everyone from your country out of spite, liked pickled bananas on their pizza, were motivated entirely by the unattractiveness of your mother, and ultimately had IQs no bigger than their shoe size. None of that would have any impact at all on the merits of their scientific proposals. As discussed, science cares only about predictive power. Portions of the work of all these men are discarded today in favor of better models, but other parts remain upheld. Imagine for a moment 
a crime scene. It's a robbery that's taking place at a convenience store. You're the detective and you've got to try to piece together the evidence that you find. You find a footprint on the countertop, broken glass by the front door. Fingerprints are actually on the register. Well, you can work backwards to try to figure out what happened. You can see the clues. You can come to some conclusions, but after all of it, and looking at all the different clues, trying to figure out the order of events, you may not have a full story. Then someone brings you the security footage showing the robbery taking place. <laughs> now you know exactly why each piece of evidence is placed where it's at. You know why the footprint's there, what broke the glass. You've seen the tape. Even in the example Herrick is showing here, the footage isn't showing us anything about the broken glass. Video footage also has limitations in usefulness as evidence and becomes suspect if what it depicts doesn't line up with corroborating physical evidence. Now apply that to the world we live in. We can look for lots of evidence, clues as to how the world came to be, why the rocks are in the order that they are in, why the ecosystem works in the way that it does. But we would always be wondering if we were seeing all the pieces of the evidence and coming to the right conclusions. If we had access to the security footage showing the creation of the world, we could see exactly how all the clues fit together. Having access to video evidence to the start of time would be pretty cool. That would definitely answer some questions, if accurate. Of course, limitations of scale, what's in frame or out of frame, the chosen camera angle and the like, would still leave unanswered questions. But wait, Eric doesn't actually think we have such footage, does he? In essence, this is what scripture is. It's the security footage of how the world came to be. Oh no, Eric. It's not security footage at all. At best, the Bible is eyewitness testimony of someone who can't be cross-examined. Even granting that it's entirely accurate, it is still very much selective in what details are included and subject to a broad range of interpretations. The confidence we place in testimony should be apportioned to the extent to which it can be corroborated with the kind of physical clues you were describing. When testimony and physical evidence are in conflict, it's generally the testimony that is considered to be faulty, because testimony is known to be unreliable on many fronts. I don't care how accurate you think the Bible is, it's not analogous to video footage. Why do many scientists conclude that the universe came to existence from nothing in an instance? Just as a point of order, Cosmologists don't put forth that the universe came to existence from nothing. When it comes to Big Bang cosmology, scientists definitely agree that the material predated it. In whatever sense, causality is coherent, absent of time. There is still conflicting speculation about the nature of eternal material or temporal eternities. But this idea of a universe from nothing is the misrepresentation that apologists give in order to mislead their audiences. Eric is counting on you not checking this. So please check this. So who are you trusting? Hopefully no one. Hopefully you put your trust in evidence and in the ideas that best conform with reality as adjudicated by predictive power. And I hope that you're not just trusting me on this. So how can people be convinced of the truth in a world that says there is no Truth. I mean, this whole video has been me advocating for truth. I just said that truth is the extent to which something comports to reality as adjudicated by predictive power. 
I'm not sure who these no-truth people are. Well, we'll dive into that in session number three, Lost Truth. Well, if part three is out already, tap on the thumbnail on screen to keep the conversation going. Or while we're waiting, tap for more explorations of Eric's particular brand of biblical trust to see if that's right for you. See you over there. Later.